Thanks for joining us to hear the latest commentary from the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide. This edition of IPG is going to focus on a pair of brand new cases, one from the United States Supreme Court and one from a California appellate court, involving issues arising when the defense claims the prosecutor is using his or her peremptory jury challenges in a way that violates the Constitution. These cases provide an interesting contrast in approaches, although they are not necessarily inconsistent in approach, just in perspective. Joining us for a discussion of the cases is my counterpart from Alameda County, the usually infallible Deputy District Attorney, Mary Pat Dooley. MP, thanks for joining me. I'm happy to be here, Jeff. This edition of IPG will provide 55 minutes of MCLE Elimination of Bias Credit. The two cases could not have come out at a better time, as their recent publication provided IPG an opportunity to highlight and update many of the issues discussed in the Inquisitive Prosecutor's Guide to Batson-Wheeler, which coincidentally was scheduled for distribution at about the same time these cases issued. That guide will accompany this podcast and includes relevant discussions and or references to all the published cases issuing from the High Court, California Appellate Courts, and the Ninth Circuit that essentially came out in the past three years. However, this podcast will just be discussing the very recent High Court case of Foster versus Chapman and the California Appellate case of People versus Alamont although a few older cases will also be referenced to the extent that they're discussed in Foster and Alamon. Mary Pat, uh, or MP as she is affectionately known by her admirers, is down here to fulfill her half of a bargain we reached a few days ago to exchange appearances on our respective shows. MP, of course, is host of Alameda County's respected weekly video production, Points and Authorities. She lasered in on the significance of these two cases immediately and realized they merited discussion on points and authorities. She agreed to guest host on IPG if I came up and host guested her show for points and authorities. Now, if you've seen that show already, everything we will be talking about will sound very familiar. If not, then sit back and be regaled as MP takes over the role of interviewer while I do my best to answer her questions. MP, the mic is yours. All right, well, at least until you start answering questions, Jeff. The first of which is, what was the high court case of Foster v. Chapman all about? Well, the case arose back in the mid-1980s when Foster sexually assaulted and strangled to death a 79-year-old woman. There was no question he was good for the crime. He confessed to it, uh, the victim's possessions were recovered from his home and from the home of his two sisters. He gets sentenced to death, and starting with a new trial motion, there was continuing litigation over the course of several decades in the appellate court. In fact, there were several petitions for review filed in the United States Supreme Court before one finally took hold and resulted in the decision we're about to talk about. This latest petition stemmed from the denial of a state habeas petition uh, by the Georgia Supreme Court. The denial was largely based on the ground that the defendant's claim had already been raised and litigated adversely to the defendant on his direct appeal to the Georgia Supreme Court. And the first part of the opinion of Foster focused a lot on whether the United States Supreme Court even had authority to hear defendant's petition, an aspect of of that opinion which we're not going to be discussing. Suffice to say, the high court decided to entertain defendant's challenge, and once that issue was decided, they got it out of the way, the high court's opinion then addressed the substance of defendant's claim. All right, so Jeff, what was the substance of that claim? That the prosecution had used their peremptory challenges to jurors in a discriminatory manner in violation of the Equal Protection Clause as outlined in the 1986 High Court decision in Batson versus Kentucky. So what evidence was there, Jeff, that the prosecution was not using its peremptory challenges properly? Well, most of the evidence relied upon by the defense came from notes of the prosecution that the defense obtained decades after conviction by way of a government public records request. These notes included several copies of veneer lists of prospective jurors. According to the testimony of an investigator who assisted the prosecution during jury selection and who testified at the state habeas proceedings, 
These veneer lists were circulated in the district attorney's office during jury selection. Everybody in the entire DA's office, approximately 10 to 12 people, including secretaries, investigators, and district attorneys, got to look at who was on the veneer list, share information that they had about the persons on the list, and contribute thoughts on whether the prosecution should strike a particular juror. Very different than how it's done in California. You know, I think it's different than how it's done in any urban DA's office. But keep in mind, the case was tried in Floyd County, a county that even today has less than 100,000 people. Now, I don't know if the jury pool drew from the entire county. The case was tried in the city of, of Rome, Georgia, which, at least as of the 2015 census, had about 35,000 people. And of course, back in 1986, there was even a smaller population in the city and county. So while it may not be like maybe RFD, where everybody in town knows one another, the pool of potential jurors is probably small enough that it wouldn't be unusual for people in the DA's office to have personal knowledge about many of the jurors. There was another thing, though, about how jury selection was done that is likely different than how jury selection is done in most places in California today. And what was that, Jeff? Well, in California, any juror can be challenged up until the point that both attorneys pass on the jury or run out of challenges. But in Rome, Georgia in 1986, in this death penalty case, the jurors were individually impaneled. In other words, a juror would be called, and then the prosecution and the defense attorney would state whether they were challenging that juror. If the juror was not challenged by the prosecution, the defense could either challenge the juror or accept the juror. If the defense accepted the prospective juror, the state had no further opportunity to use a strike against that juror. The prosecution couldn't go back like in California and later challenge the juror if they still had remaining strikes. As a result, the state had to pretty much identify the 10 jurors in advance who it needed to strike, regardless of who the defense might challenge. Wow, that is different than here. Yes, but you know, that's how they did it back then and went in Rome. Okay. With that background, Jeff, were there any notes on the list that related to the Batson-Wheeler challenge? Yes. On each copy of the veneer list, the names of the black prospective jurors were highlighted in bright green. A legend in the upper right corner of the list indicated that the green highlighting represented blacks. And I'm quoting here. The letter B also appeared next to each black prospective juror's name. Although both prospective, or both, rather, both prosecutors submitted declarations stating that they didn't make any of the green highlighted marks on the veneer list themselves, there was nothing in the declarations that they did file providing further explanation of these documents. So the highlighting could have been and probably was done by someone else in the office, but the prosecutors would have viewed these lists before they uh, did jury selection. So Jeff, was there any other evidence bearing on the issue disclosed pursuant to the public records request? Yes. The, the stuff from the prosecution files included a draft of an affidavit that had been prepared by the investigator at the request of one of the prosecutors for use in the state trial court in response to defendant's motion for a new trial. Now keep in mind, from the very start of the trial, the defense was attuned to the then very recent decision in Batson. It had issued only a few months before the trial. The defense forewarned the prosecution there was going to be a Batson claim if they used challenges in a way the defense believed violated equal protection. And the defense made a new trial motion based on a claimed Batson violation right after the defendant was convicted. Now, in response to the new trial motion, the prosecution apparently had asked the investigator to prepare an affidavit. In the typed draft of the affidavit, the investigator recounted what he had told the prosecutors before the final jury was selected. Namely, that he had recommended that if it came down to having to pick one of the black jurors, he recommended the prosecutors keep a particular black juror. That portion of the affidavit, though, had been crossed out by hand. And the final version of the affidavit, different than the draft, that was filed with the trial court by the prosecution, didn't contain this crossed out language. Did anything else come out of the public records request? Yeah, there were three handwritten notes on black prospective jurors uh, describing the jurors as B1, B2, and B3. The documents uh, that they obtained also included a type list of qualified jurors remaining after Vordire that included uh, ends next to 10 jurors' names, which the investigator said signified the 10 jurors that the state had strikes for during jury selection. An N appeared alongside the names of all five qualified black prospective jurors. 
The file also included a handwritten version of the same list with the same markings, although the actual authorship of that list was unknown. In addition, there was a handwritten document titled Definite No's, listing six names. The first five named potential jurors with no's next to their names were all African-American jurors. In addition, there was a handwritten document titled Church of Christ, and a notation on that document read NO in capital letters, followed by the notation NO BLACK CHURCH. And finally, there were the questionnaires that had been completed by several of the black prospective jurors, and on each one, the juror's response indicating his or her race had been circled. Now, Jeff, normally a Batson Wheeler motion focuses on what the actual prosecutor in the case thought. But here, it sounds like it was never settled as to who actually authored the notes that were at issue. So did the fact that authorship of some of these documents was unknown or likely authored by someone other than the prosecutors who actually handled the case, did that make a difference for the Supreme Court? Not so much. The High Court said, despite questions about who may have created the particular notes, they fell within the category of circumstantial evidence that can be considered either at a trial level when the Batson motion is first made or later by a reviewing court. Now, did these notes help establish the prosecution was acting with discriminatory intent? Yes. In particular, they contradicted some of what the prosecutor said in the trial court regarding one of the black jurors who the defense stated was improperly excluded. This was important because the fact that a reason cited by the prosecutor as a basis for challenging a particular juror is not borne out or is contradicted by the record, that can be viewed as evidence of pretext. So what sort of contradictions are we talking about? For starters, the prosecution told the trial court that the decision to challenge that juror, uh, the juror at issue, was a last-minute call that was made by the prosecutors when they suddenly found themselves with an extra peremptory challenge after another juror was unexpectedly dismissed for cause. In this uh, one prosecutor's declaration, he explained that the black juror at issue and another white juror were both listed in the notes as questionable but that they ultimately decided to keep the white questionable juror over the black questionable juror because the questionable white juror was ultimately the better prosecution juror of the two. And the notes contradicted this? Yeah. The High Court found, based on the prosecution notes, that the prosecution's claim that the striking of the black juror was a last-minute race-neutral decision, they found that was false. They said the juror in question was one of the ten listed jurors, the first five of whom were black, that the prosecutor intended to strike in advance. All these jurors, according to the notes, were definite no's. Did the state address this apparent discrepancy? The state argued that this contradiction was, was due basically because the prosecution was misspeaking. And, you know, there are a lot of cases out there saying that just because a prosecution misspeaks or in recounting their reasons for striking a juror, they misrecollect what the juror said, that's not necessarily evidence pretext. And the state sought refuge in this, in this principle. But the High Court said these statements regarding whether the challenge to the juror was a last-minute decision was not an example of misspeaking. And why not? Because the statement wasn't just like some off-the-cuff remark made by the prosecutor on the spur of the moment. The claim made by the prosecutor was part of an intricate story laid out in writing over three single-spaced pages in a brief filed with the trial court. So, Jeff, was, was that the only reason the court gave for doubting the sincerity of the prosecution's explanation for removing that particular juror? No. Uh, keep in mind, the prosecutor had given 11 reasons for challenging the juror. That uh, the juror worked with disadvantaged youth in her job as a teacher's aide. She kept looking at the ground during voir dire. She gave short and curt answers during voir dire. She appeared nervous. She was too young. She misrepresented her familiarity with the location of the crime. She failed to disclose that her cousin had been arrested on drug charges. She was divorced, had two children and two jobs, wasn't asked a lot of questions by the defense, and despite her situation of having two children and two jobs, did not ask to be excused from jury service. But Jeff, these seem like reasonable justifications. They are. You know, and to a certain extent, the Foster opinion is helpful to prosecutors because they recognized that each of these reasons, if genuine, would be reasonable justifications. In other words, all these reasons would, if true, be race-neutral reasons for challenging the juror. 
But the court then went on to, to observe that several of these reasons were contradicted by the record. For example, well, the prosecutor said he struck the black juror because the defense didn't ask her questions about several different trial issues. The transcripts actually revealed the defense did ask her questions on all three topics. Also, the court said that some of the other explanations given, while not explicitly contradicted by the record, were difficult to, to credit. And how so? Well, the prosecutor said that they challenged the juror because she was uh, divorced. But the state accepted three of, of, of four white jurors who were also divorced. They said they challenged the juror because she was young. But the juror was 34, and the prosecution accepted eight white jurors who were under 36. And one of the jurors who ended up sitting on the jury was 21 years old. They said they challenged the black juror in question because they believed she lied about not being familiar with the neighborhood. They, did, they came to this conclusion based on the fact that she went to a high school near the neighborhood of the crime. But they kept a white juror who also lived and worked near the neighborhood of the crime. Okay, well, assuming that's true, what about the fact that this black juror supposedly lied about not being familiar with the neighborhood? I mean, wouldn't that be a valid reason for striking the juror? Yes, it would. If, you, if a juror apparently or does actually lie, that's a ground for a neutral ground for challenging a juror. And the high court had no quarrel with the state's general assertion that it couldn't trust someone who gave materially untruthful answers on voir dire. But they discounted the people's claim that they actually challenged the juror because they thought she was untruthful about not being familiar with the neighborhood. Why? Because the prosecution kept a white juror who also lived near the same neighborhood and also claimed to be unfamiliar with it. They didn't find that that white juror was lying, so why did they think that the, the black juror was lying? So Jeff, does this mean misrepresentations or misrecollections by the prosecutor will always result in a finding of a Batson violation? No. The High Court highlighted it wasn't faced with a single isolated misrepresentation regarding the reasons for striking the juror. That sort of suggests that they would take a different approach if it had been just a single isolated misrepresentation. Okay, so Jeff, did the High Court discuss whether the reasons given for excluding the second African-American juror, were they also pretextual? Yes, and they found those reasons to be pretext as well. What were the reasons given by the prosecutor for striking that juror? The prosecution gave eight reasons. That the juror had a son who was the same age as the defendant and who had previously been convicted of a crime, the juror had a wife who worked in food service at the local mental health institution. That juror had experienced food poisoning during Vordaer, that he was slow in responding to death penalty questions, that he was a member of the Church of Christ, that he had a brother who counseled drug offenders, that he was not asked enough questions by the defense during Vordaer, and that he asked to be excused from jury service. So why were these reasons found to be pretextual? One general reason the Supreme Court disbelieved the prosecutor's justifications was the fact that the prosecutor's claimed primary justification for challenging the second black juror shifted over time. At the pretrial Batson motion, the prosecutor initially provided eight reasons for challenging the juror, but strongly indicated he was only concerned, uh, well, his primary concern was the fact that the, the juror had an 18-year-old son, which is about the same age as the defendant. But at a subsequent motion for a new trial, the prosecutor indicated to the trial court his paramount concern was the second black juror's membership in the Church of Christ. The prosecutor claimed the bottom line was the juror's affiliation with the Church of Christ, a church which does not take a formal stand against the death penalty, but whose members are, quote, very, very reluctant to vote for the death penalty. The problem was neither of these two primary reasons, not only the fact that they shifted, but neither of these two primary reasons stood up to scrutiny. And why not? Well, as to the claim of concern about the age of the juror's son, the court doubted it because the black juror the prosecutor did not accept stated the defendant's age would not be a factor in sentencing whatsoever. But the prosecutor did accept white jurors with sons close in age to the defendant, including a juror who stated the defendant's age would probably be a factor in sentencing. Now, the prosecution sought to explain this differing treatment by noting that, unlike the white jurors, the son of the second black juror had been convicted of, quote, basically the same thing that this defendant is charged with, unquote. But the high court said 
equating the crime committed by the son of the second black juror, which was stealing hubcaps from a car in a, a mall parking lot five years earlier, for which the guy got like a 12-month suspended sentence, with defendant's crime, a capital murder of a 79-year-old widow after a brutal sexual assault, was, was nonsense. They were not having any of it. And they basically found it was so implausible that it became evidence actually supporting the conclusion that the focus on the second juror's son was protectual. They also found the claim that the second black juror was struck because of his affiliation with the Church of Christ to be very suspect. And why was that, Jeff? Because the juror repeatedly asserted during Vordaer that he could impose a death penalty. And while the prosecution argued it challenged several white jurors on the same basis, in other words, for belonging to the same denomination, the record showed that these other jurors were not actually challenged on, the ba on, on that basis, but were excused for cause based on entirely different reasons. And the handwritten notes from the prosecution's file stated that Church of Christ didn't take a stand on the death penalty, leaving it to the individual members. They acknowledged that. But then the notes right after that stated, no, no black church. But Jeff, even if the notes did not exist, wouldn't the fact that the jurors were conceitedly excused based on their membership in a particular religion by itself be impermissible? Uh, generally, yes, in California. But the high court, to this day, has not ruled that it's unconstitutional to remove jurors based on religious affiliation. Okay. So the two primary reasons did not hold water, but what about the other justifications provided by the prosecution? Many of the other justifications provided for challenging this second black juror also were found to be disingenuous. For example? Well, the prosecution stated the black juror appeared to be confused and slow in responding to questions concerning his views on the death penalty. But that juror unequivocally voiced his willingness to impose the death penalty. And the way the question was asked, was just confusing in general. The trial court even commented on it. And a white juror who showed similar confusion was kept on the jury. Similarly, the prosecution stated it struck the second black juror because his wife worked at a hospital that dealt a lot with mentally disturbed and mentally ill people, but expressed no similar concerns about a white juror who worked in the same hospital. And the prosecution stated that the second black juror was struck because the defense didn't ask the juror certain questions. But those questions were, in fact, asked by the defense. So, Jeff, taking this evidence all together, the court found the prosecution had violated the prohibition against discriminatory use of peremptory challenges, right? Yes. In sum, the difference in treatment of the black jurors and white jurors with similar characteristics, coupled with the shifting explanations, the misrepresentations on the record, and the persistent focus on race in the prosecution's file, left the high court with the firm conviction that the strikes were motivated in substantial part by discriminatory intent. Now, the Supreme Court didn't seem to trust anything the prosecution said. Although if you read the dissenting opinion, you get a sense that a court predisposed to look favorably on the prosecution's reasons might have come to a different conclusion. So, Jeff, you have some thoughts as to why the Supreme Court majority reacted so strongly against the prosecution in this case. Uh, MP, uh, I think part of it had to do with something not actually mentioned in the opinion, but which was raised by the defense in their oral argument. And what was that? Well, there was a claim that there was a systematic exclusion of African Americans in Rome, Georgia. I think, and MP, this is my own personal assessment, that what was going on in Rome, Georgia at the time, at least what the court believed was going on in Rome, Georgia at the time, struck at the very core of why we had the Batson rules in the first place. You know, as pointed out by the California Supreme Court in People versus Wheeler, it is part of the established tradition in the use of juries as instruments of public justice that the jury be a body truly representative of the community. For racial discrimination to result in the exclusion from jury service of otherwise qualified groups not only violates our Constitution and the laws enacted under it, but is at war with our basic concepts of a democratic society and a representative government. The idea that juries should reflect the cross-section of the community so that the fact-finding process isn't distorted by group bias would be completely undermined if, by strategic use of peremptory challenges, the state could effectively prevent members or prevent all members of one group from ever serving on juries. The possibility or probability that 
that was what was going on may explain some of the court's uh, severe skepticism toward the prosecution. All right. Jeff, I noticed that you and other Pubas with expertise in this area often advise prosecutors to note the race or ethnic background of the jurors. And in fact, in People v. Lennox, the California Supreme Court stated that post-Batson recording, the race of each juror is an important tool to be used by the court and counsel in mounting, refuting, or analyzing a Batson challenge. But in Foster, the United States Supreme Court relied heavily on notes from the prosecution's file that identified jurors as black to undermine the prosecution's claim that it exercised its strikes in a colorblind manner. The Supreme Court noted the sheer number of references to race in that file was, in their words, arresting. So, Jeff, in light of Foster, should prosecutors not take any notes on the race or ethnic background of jurors? You know, that would be the wrong takeaway from Foster. It's true that in Foster, the prosecution tried to claim that their focus on black prospective jurors didn't reflect an attempt to exclude black jurors from the jury. Rather, they said the focus reflected an effort to ensure that the state was thoughtful and non-discriminatory in its consideration of black prospective jurors and to develop and maintain detailed information on those prospective jurors in order to properly defend against any suggestion of pretext. In other words, the prosecution was trying to characterize their notes highlighting the race of the jurors as a defense mechanism to a potential Batson challenge. Moreover, it is also true that the Foster Court disbelieved the prosecution in that regard. But that was because this claim that the notes were being used as a defensive mechanism was never raised until the very last brief, I think, filed by the, by the state. It never was mentioned in the nearly 30-year history of this litigation, not in the trial court, not in the state habeas court, and not even in the state's brief in opposition to Foster's uh, petition for cert. To the high court, it smacked of after-the-fact justification, and the notes in the file plainly demonstrated a concerted effort to keep black prospective jurors off the jury. Okay. That being said, <laughs> the Foster court did not dispute that identifying jurors by race would be proper if done for the, if truly done for the assorted purpose given by the prosecution. In fact, the very reason the argument was made by the prosecution reflects that taking such notes for the purpose of responding to a Batson-Wheeler motion, either at the time the challenge is made or years later at a Batson-Wheeler remand hearing, that would be a, a, a proper response. It would be a, a, a good reason for identifying the race or ethnicity of the jurors uh, on the notes. All right, then, Jeff, assuming that identifying jurors as a defensive mechanism is proper, is there some way for prosecutors to make it clear that their purpose for identifying the race or ethnic background of their jurors is being done for this proper purpose and not for any improper purpose? Well, uh, according to San Francisco Assistant District Attorney Jared Coleman, the LADA's office provides a form to prosecutors for writing down observations of panelists during jury selection that has a pre-printed notation on it, essentially stating that the identification of the juror's race, gender, or ethnicity is done solely for the purpose of responding to a Batson-Wheeler motion. Now, in the absence of some pre-printed form, prosecutors can convey that same intent by simply making a notation in the file of the purpose for identifying the cognizable class to which the panelist belongs on the notes themselves or putting the reason for such notations on the record. Jeff, another concern that some prosecutors have raised in light of this Foster case is whether the defense can demand to see their jury selection notes. Well, the, the MP, this concern, I think, is a little bit overblown. In California, the, the government's entitled to assert the work product privilege to prevent the disclosure of just these kinds of notes from public records requests. Now, whether such an objection to the request was made in the Georgia case and or whether a court ruled that the privilege was overcome by the need for the notes, that's not discussed in the Foster opinion. But if a defense makes a public record request for such notes in California, uh, the work product privilege should be asserted, and you can reference California Government Code Section 6254K, which exempts from release records the disclosure of which is prohibited by the provisions of the evidence code relating to privilege. Also, if the defense claims that they are entitled to such records because the records somehow constitute discovery, then 
an argument can be raised that such a request is barred by Penal Code Section 1054. However, hopefully, in most cases, the information in the notes will be beneficial to the prosecution. In other words, we wouldn't want to assert the privilege. And if we did assert the privilege, unless there was evidence supporting a claim of discriminatory prosecution, a court reviewing the documents in camera should not release the notes to the defense. Okay, Jeff, I think you've told us all we need to know about the holding in Foster. So let's move on to the case of People v. Aleman, a California Court of Appeal case involving two defendants and multiple murders. In my opinion, Aleman illustrates many of the principles that all prosecutors should be aware of when confronted with an unjustified Batson-Wheeler motion. So Jeff, what can you tell us about the Aleman case? MP, in Aleman, the defendant contended that the prosecution, motivated by group bias, removed six prospective jurors, all of whom were either African-American or Hispanic-American. Several bats and wheeler challenges were made throughout jury selection. The first one came after the prosecutor challenged an African-American female juror and a Hispanic-American female juror. So did the trial court find a prima facie basis for the challenge? Yes, uh, the trial court did. That was the first stage. That meant the challenge proceeded to the second stage of a Batson-Wheeler motion where the prosecution was asked to justify the challenge. So what was the reason the prosecutor gave for challenging the African-American female juror? Well, during Vordire, the juror said she had previously served on an attempted murder case that appeared to have resulted in an acquittal. And in describing that prior case, the juror stated, it was domestic violence. The wife was getting abused by her husband, and she shot him. The juror described the shooting as accidental. Now keep in mind, it was the, the, the wife who was the, the criminal defendant. The prosecutor focused on this answer when asked to explain why this juror was challenged. The prosecutor said the answer showed the juror was already of a mindset that the prosecution does not always present the truth. Moreover, the prosecutor stated the juror had characterized the defendant in the case she previously sat on as a victim. And the trial court seemed to agree with this characterization in finding this juror was properly challenged. Now on appeal, the defendant claimed the trial court's ruling was not entitled to any deference because in fact, the juror never characterized the defendant in the prior case as a victim, which was technically true. And uh, the court relied on the prosecutors, the trial court relied on the prosecutors' misstatement of the record. Now, Jeff, a prosecutor's mischaracterization of the evidence is sometimes considered evidence of pretext. What did the appellate court think of this mischaracterization? Very little. I mean, this whole opinion uh, reveals that the appellate court had a lot of disdain for many of the defense arguments. It found that the prosecutor challenged the juror because of her vote to acquit in the previous case reflected a defense bias. The appellate court said, from the prosecution's perspective, a preemptory challenge in this case was almost a foregone conclusion. And the challenge was very clearly race neutral and conformed to the Wheeler-Batson standards. They said it was, it was just unimportant how she referred to the defendant in that case. The appellate court, which had a lot of good insight into how prosecutors actually think about these things, pointed out the way the witness described what happened in the prior attempted murder case was not how a prosecutor would like to see an attempted murder conviction or a prosecution described. The court then went, to, went on to point out the prosecution's challenge doesn't have to be based on a ground that it approves of. The appellate court stated that some people might find it objectionable or even offensive for a prosecutor to remove a juror simply because the juror voted to acquit in a previous case and that that kind of reason wouldn't be a, a basis for a challenge for cause. But they said, a peremptory challenge can be based on an idiosyncratic or arbitrary reason and even on a hunch. The question is whether the challenge was based on group bias, such as race or ethnicity, and thus would, would violate the Equal Protection Clause. If there was no group, group bias, the preemptory challenge will stand. Accordingly, the appellate court upheld the challenges found. Now, what was the reason the prosecution gave for challenging the Hispanic American female juror? This juror had told the court on Vordire that she was pregnant and that she had a group appointment once a month on Fridays that couldn't be changed. The prosecution 
early on expressed express some kind of willingness to uh, stipulate to excuse this juror. But the defense counsel said, look, she's got unlimited pay, she could stay for a long time, and the trial court felt that they could work around the juror's schedule. The primary reason the prosecutor challenged the juror was because he had an uncooperative witness who was pregnant, and he had to place that uncooperative witness in custody to ensure her appearance. The prosecutor was worried that the juror would feel some sort of kinship or, or uh, sympathy with this uh, witness and hold it against the prosecutor for having placed a pregnant woman like herself in custody. So why did the defense claim that this reason was a pretext? Well, the defense claimed that the reason lacked plausibility because the witness would not be pregnant by the time she was called to testify and because the trial court upheld the challenge under the false assumption that the juror had asked to be excused because she was pregnant. And how did the appellate court respond to this claim? With disdain. <laughs> what did they say? Well, they said the defense appeared to mistakenly think that a prosecutor is required to deliver some sort of compelling, factually unimpeachable case against a prospective juror when exercising a peremptory challenge. They said that, of course, is not the case. Here, the reason given by the prosecutor was not idiosyncratic, uh, nor trivial. There was no dispute here that the witness was pregnant and in custody and would be testifying. And while it may have been true the witness wouldn't be pregnant at the time she testified, there was nothing, they said, that required the prosecutor to gamble that it wouldn't somehow become known that he had imprisoned an expected mother for no reason other than that he needed her testimony. The prosecutor could rightly assume that not every person, especially someone in this juror's uh, position, could be expected to pass lightly over this fact. Bottom line, they found that the explanation was race neutral. So Jeff, what about the claim that the trial court did not have the facts straight when it remarked that the juror, that the, it was the juror who asked to be excused because of her pregnancy? Well, the appellate court said it's true the juror did not make this kind of request. Yet, they said, the court's ruling was not based on the fact the juror would have problems sitting as a juror while pregnant but on the recognition the juror might be upset about the incarceration of the witness. The trial court's mistaken recollection about a fact that had nothing really to do with its ruling was not a material misrecollection, and thus it did not impact whether the prosecution's challenge to the juror was justified. All right, Jeff, what were the prosecutor's reasons for removing the third juror, who was another Hispanic American female? Well, the prosecutor identified several reasons. The prosecutor pointed out that the juror was late for court one day, was young, had never been on prior jury service, and lacked the life experience of other jurors and the experience necessary to render a verdict or decide when a witness is telling the truth. The prosecutor also explained that the juror had two children with someone who was not married to her, and this guy was someone who had always been unemployed. The prosecutor said, given the fact that he was going to be calling witnesses, women who were, were about the age of the juror who would be testifying, and these witnesses would likely come to court and make excuses for the defendants, the prosecutor had concerns that this juror would identify with these women since she might be the kind of person who, because she had two children with a habitually unemployed person, she might also be prone to making excuses for her partner. Moreover, the prosecutor believed the juror did not appear to be a conservative juror. Now, Jeff, this set of reasons sounds similar to a challenge found impermissible in People v. Gonzalez, a 2008 case, where the prosecutor's explanation for challenging a juror was that the juror was young, he had no significant ties, such as a spouse or children, he did not have the qualities the prosecutor was looking for in a juror, without stating what those qualities were, and he spoke Spanish which the prosecutor claimed would have caused difficulties because interpreters were going to be used. Well, not surprisingly, that was one of the cases the defense in Alleman attempted to rely on in claiming the prosecutor's explanation was a pretext. But the Alleman court observed the situation in Gonzales was a far cry from the situation in, in, the, in, its, in the case that was before it. They pointed out there was nothing in the record in Gonzales to support the belief that the juror lacked significant ties to a spouse or, or, or children. And, although not specified in the Alleman case, 
the Gonzalez court also found the prosecutor's claim the juror lacked maturity to be a bogus claim because the exact age of the juror was not disclosed by the record and the prosecutor claimed the occupation of the juror, clearing utility lines, indicated the juror was somehow lacking in maturity. But the job could actually have been a responsible, permanent, possibly career position. So all those reasons that existed in Gonzales, they didn't exist in Alleman, and the Court of Appeal found the reasons that were given by the prosecutor in this case were much more compelling than those in the case of Gonzales. So, Jeff, what about the prosecutor's statement that the juror was not, quote, conservative? Can that be grounds for removing the juror? Yes. The Court of Appeal said the fact that a prosecutor finds a juror not to be conservative was a valid consideration in any criminal trial. And the fact that the juror was unmarried with children, also a basis for challenging a juror? Yes. Now, the court did acknowledge that the prosecutor was presuming the juror's attitude might be too permissive, given that she was not married to this habitually unemployed father of her children, and that in a certain sense, uh, this was socially stigmatizing the juror. Well, the prosecutor was doing that, Jeff. In a sense, yes. But the court's response to the notion uh, that some people might uh, privately bridle at this type of social stigmatizing of an unwed mother did not uh, carry much weight with the Court of Appeal. They said, look, jury selection is not a parlor game. The court said the prosecutor's conclusions reached on the fly with little time for reflection were in fact quite plausible. They said, if an unmarried parent of two is late for court, this can arguably, even if ungenerously, be seen as a lack of maturity, or as the prosecutor put it, as a lack of life experiences. All right. What about the fourth juror, also a Hispanic American female? What were the reasons provided by the prosecution to challenge this juror? Well, the juror was a college student who had completed her associate degree in criminal justice. And the prosecution challenged her primarily based on a concern that her legal training might pose a risk if she disagreed with anything the prosecution did in the case and also because she was a young college student who dressed casually, had limited life experiences, and had a father who'd been arrested for a DUI about two and a half years, two and a half years earlier. Did the appellate court find these reasons to be neutral grounds for the challenge? Yes, the court began its analysis by what it said was the rather obvious point that allowing anyone with legal training to serve on a jury is a calculated risk. The court said the prosecutor's statement that he didn't want to take the risk with this young juror if she disagreed with anything that they, they did in the particular case. They said was right out of the playbook of any competent trial attorney. The appellate court additionally found that given the youth of the juror, she was already marginal in the prosecutor's opinion and the other factors such as the father's DUI made her a doubtful choice regardless of her racial or ethnic background. Okay, Jeff, how about the fifth juror challenged by the prosecution, who was a female African-American? What were the reasons given by the prosecution for her challenge? The prosecutor stated, when he asked the juror about the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt, and if this juror would be able to convict, the jury said, if you absolutely prove it. The prosecutor said he had to explain that the requirement is not that he absolutely prove it, but that he just had to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecutor also mentioned that the juror's demeanor and the way she said things, uh, she did in a way that troubled the prosecutor. And did the defense take issue with this characterization? Yes. The defense counsel claimed the juror had not said the prosecution absolutely had to prove the case, but only that she would have to be absolutely convinced. The trial court then interjected and stated the juror actually said it would have to be absolutely correct before ultimately, before ultimately the trial court found the reason provided by the prosecutor was race neutral. So there was some mischaracterization by the prosecutor of exactly what the juror at issue had said, right? Yes. And on appeal, the defense argued the juror made it clear she could and would follow the reasonable doubt standard. The defense claimed what occurred with this juror was very much like what happened in People v. Silva, a California Supreme Court case from 2001. So what happened in Silva? Well, that was a case where the prosecutor, in response to a Batson-Wheeler challenge, 
had stated the juror would be reluctant to return a death verdict and was an extremely aggressive person who might hang the jury on the question of penalty. But in that case of Silva, there was nothing in the juror's voir dire that supported either assertion, even remotely. The trial judge in that case stated the prosecutor had provided a good excuse, but said nothing to indicate it was aware of or attached any significance to this obvious gap between the prosecutor's claimed reason for exercising a preemptive challenge and the facts as they were disclosed by the transcript. Silva, the case of Silva, is a cautionary tale for judges not just to accept the prosecutor's statements when there's a discrepancy between the prosecutor's recitation of what the juror said and what the juror actually said. But Silva did not control the outcome of the case in Alleman. Why not? Well, the Alleman court distinguished Silva and did not get hung up on the imprecise recollection of what the juror said. Indeed, despite the fact none of the parties, including the trial court, identified precisely what the juror said, the Alleman appellate court focused on the fact that what was clear was that the juror had used language that reflected she might hold the prosecutor to a higher burden of proof. And both the prosecutor and the trial court were properly attuned to the significance of what the juror said. The fact that the prosecutor may have mistakenly read the juror in the Alleman case, they said, was not evidence of root bias. All right, there was one other juror who was also removed and was the subject of a Batson-Wheeler challenge that was denied by the trial court. What was the ground given by the prosecution as to this juror? The prosecutor said this juror came across as very opinionated and was overly receptive to the notion that a defendant is innocent until proven guilty. The prosecutor said the juror actually came up with the term innocent until proven guilty, and that's a quote from, from what the prosecutor said. The trial court agreed with the prosecutor's assessment of this prospective juror and noted that the juror was very young and very opinionated and could present issues for either side because of her forceful personality. What did the defense claim was wrong with this reason on appeal? Well, on appeal, the defense claimed the prosecutor's statement that the juror actually came up with the term innocent until proven guilty was inherently implausible. Since the trial court and at least 10 prospective jurors used the same term. And of course, we know that if a reason is inherently implausible, that can be evidence of pretext. So what did the appellate court say about that? The appellate court said it was impossible to know exactly what the prosecutor meant by the remark, but that what the prosecutor probably meant by it was that the juror was quick to volunteer the phrase. And the prosecutor's follow-up questions confirmed that the prosecutor was genuinely, not protectionally, concerned with the fact this juror was too strongly focused on this presumption. The appellate court found that this concern would naturally and legitimately be a great interest to any prosecutor, since a wrong view of the presumption of innocence can scuttle a criminal prosecution. Jeff, was that the only basis behind the defendant's claim on appeal that the trial court erred in finding the prosecutor's challenge to this juror was legitimate? No. The defendant also claimed the trial court's assessment that the juror was opinionated, as was asserted by the prosecution, was not supported by the record. And how did the appellate court respond to this allegation? They weren't swayed by this allegation either. The court said, look, humans frequently draw conclusions about the character traits of their fellow men and women by indications that will not appear on a paper record. And that's actually one reason why the standard of review on a Batson-Wheeler motion is deferential. The court pointed out that the characterization of the juror as being opinionated was based on how the juror deported himself, which, of course, was not going to be transcribed in the record. And they said that the fact the trial court also picked up on this one character trait that seemed to perturb the prosecutor was significant in showing that, in fact, it wasn't a protectual reason. All right. Jeff, anything else we need to know about Alman? Just one thing. We all know that prosecutors must use their challenges in good faith and not with the intent to exclude jurors based on their race, ethnicity, religion, or membership in any cognizable class. But just as it is important for prosecutors to properly use their challenges, it is also important that prosecutors not be forced to select their jury based on a fear 
they might have to face a motion, albeit a, a, a false motion or a mistaken motion, that they are using their peremptory challenges in a discriminatory fashion. Alleman, I believe, shows that if a prosecutor is genuinely using their challenges for proper purposes, even a full-on attempt by the defense to make it appear otherwise, that attempt will ultimately fail. How so? Well, in Alleman, after the prosecutor challenged the five of the six jurors at issue in this case, the defense counsel claimed that the prosecution was removing every ethnic minority and that the veneer had begun to laugh as the prosecution was removing minorities. The trial court stated that it wasn't sure why the prospective jurors were laughing, and they, in the trial court, refused to speculate as to why there was laughter. It then sort of gave the floor over to the prosecution to respond. And how did the prosecutor respond? The prosecutor attributed the laughter to the defense attorney visibly reacting to every peremptory challenge to a juror who was a member of a minority group, and to the fact the jury was watching for defense counsel's reaction every time such a challenge was made. The prosecutor essentially responded that it was defense counsel who was seeking to keep jurors based on their racial background and stated the prosecutor was not going to be bullied into selecting a juror which the prosecutor would normally kick for these reasons just because counsel was wheelering the prosecutor. So the defense claims went for naught? Yes, that's right. Now, whether the defense was actually using the Batson motion improperly as a tactical device can be disputed. But the prosecutor certainly believed the defense counsel was using the challenges in a way to unfairly influence the jury's opinion of the prosecutor and to intimidate the prosecutor into accepting jurors who might hang the case. In any event, that tactic did not work. Although I have to say the fact that a third of the jurors who ended up sitting on the jury were Hispanic American may have played some role in both the trial court and the appellate court's eventual ruling as well. All right, Jeff, I think we covered both Foster and Alamon pretty well. There are obviously many other cases that have come out in the past couple of years also worthy of discussion, but for those wishing to learn about them, let me just refer them to the IPG handout that accompanies this podcast, which is done as usual with the excellence of Jeff Rubin. Well, I don't know if that's the case, but it's a perfect way to wrap it up. So thank you very much for joining me.